Well, there's a video on YouTube um, that I've watched multiple times, and I just can't get over it uh, when I watch it. It's only a couple minutes long, but the video is of a photo shoot um, of this woman who does this particular style of martial arts, and I won't try to say the name of it because it won't go well, um, but she does this style of, of martial arts, and you know, she's doing the voiceover and talking while you're watching the, the video shoot, and she's talking about how this particular style of martial arts is largely taken from the movements of animals, and the lion in particular. And so, I don't know how that works, but that's what she said. So, naturally, she wanted to, for a magazine, get a photo shoot with a lion, with her doing this, you know, our martial arts, uh, movements and all of that and showing some of the moves for it. What could go wrong? <laughs> so they, you know, they go to a zoo and they're in this like, enclosed room or whatever and they have a trainer there who's got a leash on the lion and she's kind of moving around the lion doing her movements and all of that to get photos for, for the magazine cover. Uh, now keep in mind that this is not a baby lion. It is about a 400 pound fully grown lion that is next to her. So I mean, you know what's gonna happen, right? I don't even have to tell the rest of the story, but I'll tell it anyway. At one point in the video, she, the lion you know, is watching her and it lunges at her and she tries to move away from it and she trips and falls and it doesn't actually get her. And when that happens, you know, the trainer's yanking on the, the leash that he has on the lion, and the trainer says, oh, he's, he's just being playful. <laughs> so naturally, they continue the photo shoot because humans are morons, and that's what they do. <laughs> so <laughs> she begins doing her next sequence. She gets up, and, you know, they sort of, I guess, get the line under control or whatever, and they, she gets up and starts doing her next round of movements, and you know the camera angle is really right up next to the lion, and you can see the lion kind of looking over at her and noticing the movements that she's doing, and I don't know if the, the trainer like took his eyes off for a moment or whatever, but it lunges at her, and she doesn't see it coming, and this time it gets both paws up on her side and completely knocks her over and gets on top of her. And um, the, one of the cameramen, of course, there's all this commotion, and one of the cameramen runs over and kicks the lion in the face, and the trainer pulls the lion, and it, you know, it gets off of her or whatever. But she's so dazed, she can barely move, and she's laying there on the ground, and while they're trying to get the lion under control over here, it lunges at her several more times to try to get at her. And the trainer is trying to control it, and he keeps telling it, no, no, you know, no, don't do that. And, you know, as I'm watching this unfold, the only thing you can think is, it's a lion. Like, this is what it's supposed, it was made to do this. It was made to hunt and attack and kill things. This is what lions do. What did you guys think was going to happen? when you brought this thing in here and let this woman do these strange movements around it. And the point of this is you and I have to see sin for what it truly is. Sin is a 400 pound lion and you can't treat it like my 40 pound labradoodle that I have at my house. They're not the same animal and they don't act the same way. 
toward people. And so one of my goals in this series that we're doing on fighting against sin is I want to try to help all of us to to take on a more biblical perspective of sin. I want us to see it for what it truly is. I want us to understand what we're dealing with. And when we understand what we're dealing with, we'll be better prepared and better able to fight against sin. And so last week we started this series and I explained to you that it's going to unfold in three big pieces over the next probably month or two. And the first one of these is the personal fight against sin. You can see these three areas here on the screen, but the the center circle is the personal fight against sin. What do you need to do as an individual in your own life to battle sin and to fight against sin? And then it sort of moves out from there to relational the relational fight against sin. How do we help one another in this fight? How do we come alongside one another and be a benefit to each other as we're fighting against sin? What can we do? And then the last one is the communal fight against sin. As a church body, we have certain responsibilities that are biblically outlined in how we deal with sin. When there's persistent and unrepentant sin in our midst, what do we do with that? We can't just ignore the lion. We can't just let it run rampant through our church body, and so we have to deal with it, and there are biblical texts that help us to understand and address sin within our church body. And so that's what's going to happen over the next few weeks here. We're going to move out in this, but this week we're going to continue the personal fight against sin. Last week I told you we're going to give you four strategies to fight sin personally, and we started with the first one of those last week. And that was be who you are. We based that largely in Romans chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. But just to remind you, the key verse in that uh, discussion last week was Romans 6.11. So you also must consider, calculate, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Your position has been changed in Christ. You and I have to calculate the reality of our conversion, of our salvation, and understand the change that has been wrought in our hearts. We're not the same as we used to be. We have to live worthy, comparable. Our lifestyles have to match our conversion. Changes will take place. One author said it this way, and I love this, remaining indwelling sin is therefore the contradiction of all that he is as a regenerate person and son of God. Persisting in sin is the complete opposite of who you are in Christ if you're saved. And so in order to be who you are, you and I have to understand who we are in Christ. We have to know the gospel. And this strategy, be who you are, this is really the heart of Paul's teaching over his epistles on sanctification. He continually draws us back to gospel realities. And he even wants believers to reorient themselves to the gospel and understand who they are. And that's how sanctification and growth takes place. The gospel changes us, and we have to continually go back to it, to the truths of the gospel And as we do that, our thoughts, our desires, and our behaviors will all change and become more Christ-like. They will match the reality of who we are in Christ. So that's kind of the big first strategy to fight sin in our personal lives, and we're going to hit two more today and then one more next week. The second one of these is expose the lies 
of sin. Be who you are and expose the lies of sin. So I told you a few minutes ago that you can't treat the 400-pound lion like a 40-pound house pet. But here's the problem with sin. Sin does not present itself as a 400-pound lion. Sin wants you to think of it as a 40-pound house pet that you can tame and that you can pet and that you can treat kindly and you can invite into your home and you can leave with your children. That's how sin wants you to understand it, but it is bent on destroying you, destroying me. And here's the reality of sin. Sin always lies to us. Sin always, 100% of the time, lies to us. It never tells you the truth. It presents itself one way, and it's not accurate to how things are. It never says to you, this affair will completely ruin your life, and the heartbreak will be almost unbearable to deal with. Instead, sin deceives you at every turn. It'll be fine. It'll be fun. It'll be no big deal. It won't hurt anybody else. Sin lies to us all the time. I mean, think about what happened back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. I mean, really, the serpent only said two things to Adam and Eve, essentially. He said, did God really say? And he said, you will not surely die. Both of those are filled with deception. They're lies. God really did say, and they really did die. Sin was dishonest from the very beginning. And had there been no lie, had there been no deception, then there would not have been sin. Deception was the path to sin for Adam and Eve. They bought into the lies. They believed the lies. They believed they would be like God in some way. They believed that eating this would actually be good for them and that God had been holding something back from them that they they really needed and that they really wanted. They believed he kept something from them. And so when we talk about the fight against sin personally, this is where the fight takes place. It's not a physical altercation. You're not raising your fists up to fight against sin, but you're battling against lies and you're trying to expose the lies of sin. They're always there. They're always there. There's no time where sin tells you the truth in its fullness. It's not accurate. It's not fair to the way things are. Another author said this, all sin takes its origin from false views of things. And sin wants you to take a false view of things, to not see reality as it is, as God has said it is. This is the DNA of sin. It's not honest. It's not upfront. It's not forthcoming. Now, I really want to press this home to you because I think if you can get a handle on this, if I can get a handle on this, when we're tempted, when our hearts are drawn towards something, we can immediately go, okay, this is not as it seems to be. There's a lie being told here, and I have got to expose the lie that is being told here. I've got to see it for what it really is. You may not always be readily able to do that, but if you're aware enough, you can start the process of of identifying the lie. And so I want to, this morning, show you from two passages, one Old Testament and one New Testament, the deceitfulness of sin. 
So turn to Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to show you this in this passage, and then we'll move to Hebrews chapter 3. We'll show it to you there. Isaiah 44. We're going to start in verse 9. Now, obviously, idolatry is a huge issue in the Old Testament, and this text is pointing out to Israel that idolatry is wrong. But beyond being wrong, idolatry, when you give into idolatry, you are buying into worthless lies. When you worship something other than God, when you give your heart to something other than God, you have bought a lie. And God wants Israel to see that here. And so he paints this picture of idolatry as profoundly stupid and profoundly deluded. Look at verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. But they say they profit, don't they? They tell us they profit. They say this will be good for you, but they don't profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Why would you do this? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. And then God calls them forward. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And he explains the situation here. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Think about this. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Think about the profound stupidity of that. And then look at this explanation in verses 18 through 20. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Look, this person is so deluded by this idol that they can't even see what they're doing. They can't even see reality as it is. And then verse 20 is really the key. The person who worships an idol, he feeds on ashes. He feeds on ashes. He eats ashes. He goes to his fireplace and takes a scoop of ash and shoves it into his mouth and thinks, this will satisfy, this will nourish me. Look at the rest of verse 20. A deluded heart has led him 
astray. And then this is the scary part about believing the lies of sin, the rest of this verse. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He can't even recognize the lie anymore. He comes to a point where he doesn't even know right from wrong. He doesn't even know a lie from the truth. When you buy into a lie and begin believing the lie, you have no control over where that will take you. You can't stop anytime you want to. You'll become more and more insulated against the truth and believing the lie, and you will be so self-deceived that you won't even have the capability to say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You'll look at that lie, you'll eat those ashes, and you'll think, this is good for me. This is nourishing to me. It's insane. And that's what sin does to us. It lies to us and then destroys us. Now flip over to Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews is warning these believers not to fall away from Jesus Christ, not to go back to what they trusted in before. And here he's telling them, don't harden your hearts And he's using Old Testament Israel as an example. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The Israelites failed to believe God and trust God in the wilderness, and so their hearts were hardened against God. And so he's holding up that example, and now he applies that same logic and that same reasoning to the Christians. And he presses on them the need to trust God and not be deceived by sin. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers. Be cautious. Be diligent. Be aware. Be watchful. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil un believing heart. He's warning them about an unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart is a lack of faith. It's turning from God and believing the lies of sin, trusting in sin. The people in the wilderness, the Israelites, believed God wasn't good. They were lacking faith in his character, in his goodness. Christian, don't turn from the goodness of God. Don't stop believing in him. What will happen? Verse 12, leading you to fall away from the living God. So what do you do? How do you counteract an unbelieving heart? Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is lying to you. It wants you to turn away from God. It wants you to believe. And as you believe the lies of sin, your heart will be hardened. And the answer to that is to believe the truth, to exhort one another with the truth. It's to help one another believe the promises of Scripture, believe the warnings of Scripture, to believe what God said. 
It's to answer the lies of sin by saying, this is the truth of the gospel. Believe this instead. This is a better promise. This is a better satisfaction. This will lead to more joy than that lie. Contradict the deceitful lies of sin with the truths of the gospel. But true believers ultimately are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence, our original trust in Christ firm to the end. True believers persevere in trusting God and persevere in the faith. They don't earn their salvation by perseverance, but their true salvation results in perseverance. And it results in them continuing to trust God and continuing to believe. We all struggle with the lies of sin at time, at times, but true believers will ultimately come back to the gospel and trust in what God has said. So what do we do? I mean, it's pretty clear here, right? Exhort one another day after day. What do we do to fight the lies of sin? We preach the truth to ourselves. You and I need the truth. We need to expose the lies of sin with the truth on a consistent day after day basis. This has to be normal life for us. When we're tempted to sin, we carefully consider what lies we are being deluded with. And we counteract those lies with the gospel. So we have to know the gospel well enough to be able to say that's not true and to fight against that lie with the truth. So let me give you an example of this to try to help this become a little clearer to you. And the example I'm going to use is one that is very prevalent in our culture today, and it's a lie that so many people have bought into, even Christians. It's the lie of pornography. Pornography as an industry makes around $100 billion a year. That's more combined revenue than the National Football League, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. Now, there are so many lies that pornography preaches to us, and it tries to get people to engage, and we could go through a litany of those lies this morning, but I just want to focus on one to try to show you how this works. The one lie is that this sin doesn't really affect anyone else, and it really doesn't affect me, and that's not true. What happens when you view pornography, is that you have bought into the lie. You have believed that the people in front of you on that screen are objects to be used for your pleasure and discarded when you are finished with them. They're objects. And when you believe that lie, it will not stay confined to that moment of time when you're viewing the pornography on the computer screen or on your phone. It will reshape your view of people, and ultimately it will reshape the way you act toward other people. Every part of your life will see people as objects to be used in the way you want to use them. All relationships will become consumer relationships to you, where that person is there to meet some want that I have and then to be thrown aside when that want is satisfied. Now, beyond that, it has a massive impact on sex trafficking, on prostitution. It destroys families and marriages, and there are so many results that it has in our lives. 
But how do we counteract that lie? People are objects to be used. You may not even be conscious that you're believing that, but that's what you bought into. I'm the center of the universe and everyone else is there for me to use them for my pleasure. The gospel calls us to view every human being as made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. People are not objects to be used. They're image bearers to be loved and served and to do good to them. And maybe that's not your particular sin struggle, but let me encourage you, identify what your struggle is and expose the lies that that sin is telling you with the gospel. When you sin, every time you sin, you and I are buying into some lie that sin is selling. Expose it and consider how the gospel defeats that sin and that lie. And I'll tell you, Romans 3.13 couldn't be clear. We need one another in this fight. This is not an isolated thing. I know we're talking about the personal fight against sin, but ultimately you can't do this on your own. And that's why we need one another in our local church. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. We need help because I don't always see things how they are. And I need someone from outside of me to say, Nathan, you are not seeing this right. Here's the reality of the situation. Here's the biblical gospel truth that comes to bear on this circumstance. And that's so helpful to us. And so we need one another. So one of the best ways to fight sin is through good and biblical conversations with each other to fight it, expose the lies. And that brings us to our our third strategy that goes hand in hand with the second one. Expose the lies of sin and then cultivate a new affection. So when we talk about exposing the lies of sin, it can be very easy for us to think that the battle against sin is largely won in between our ears in our brains. That if we can just come to the point where we think rightly, intellectually, then we will beat sin. And obviously, thinking rightly is a huge piece of the fight against sin. But if the only thing you're doing is trying to align your thoughts correctly, you won't fight sin. Because that's not how human beings work. We are driven by motivations, by passions, by desires. You get up in the morning and you act and you do things because you're driven by wanting something, by a desire that is there. God has designed us that way. I mean, listen to how the Apostle John describes this in 1 John 2. Do not love the world. Right? There's, there's an affection, there's a desire there that he's warning against. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. There's one love or the other. You can love the Father or you can love the world. The affections and the passions that you have are what drive your activities and your actions. And so, in order to effectively fight sin, we have to have changed hearts. We have to have new passions and new desires. You'll never truly overcome sin and fight sin in a significant way until you have new desires, until your desire for sin has been sapped and defeated 
and it's been replaced with a desire for Jesus Christ. Bethany and I have only ever been to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse twice in our lives. How many of you know what Ruth's Chris Steakhouse is? So it's this super fancy chain of steakhouses. They have one in Ann Arbor, I believe. And you go in there and they serve steaks. They bring out this plate and it's a la carte. So there's just a slab of meat sitting on your, on your plate. And it's got butter like literally sizzling on the top of it. And it's at like 700 degrees when it comes out to you. And um, you have to be careful, you know, with it or whatever. But it, it arrives on your plate and you can just about cut it with a fork. And it is magnificent. I know you're all, have, I've lost you now for the next few minutes. <laughs> for the two of us to eat at Ruth's Chris, it costs well over $100. And the only reason we went is because, not that it's wrong to go, but the only reason, we went twice in seminary, and the only reason we went is because we had gotten two gift cards from people. <laughs> and so we took full advantage and went. And eating a steak there is a sublime experience. It is delightful. It's so flavorful and tender, and it's transformative <laughs> in many ways. So we went there and enjoyed this wonderful meal together. And what do you think we did when we left Ruth's Chris filled to the brim with filet mignon, eating a 12-ounce steak, maybe 16, I don't remember, what do you think the first thing was that we did when we left there? Well, obviously, we went to McDonald's. And we both got Big Macs. I think eating a hamburger was the furthest thing from our minds when we left Ruth's Chris. We didn't want anything less than a $3.99 hamburger with special sauce. Why? Because our hunger was satisfied at the steakhouse. And so it was not hard for us to drive by McDonald's. It was not a temptation for us to pull into McDonald's and get a Big Mac. And that's the real issue with sin, isn't it? That's the real problem. We look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. The problem is not that we want something. The problem is not that we have a hunger inside of us. The problem is that our hunger is aimed at all the wrong things in the wrong direction. And it's aimed at things that ultimately will not bring fulfillment and satisfaction. And here's how C.S. Lewis described this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's our problem. It's not that our desires are too much, it's that they're too little. We're, we're too easily pleased. We would trade the steak for the Big Mac. 
Biblically speaking, this is what Paul's talking about when he's talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. We exchange one desire for a new desire, a new affection. Sinful desires are rooted in lies and satisfying desires are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. Ephesians 4 verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. I love how Paul describes the unbeliever's walk. Futility. Unsatisfied. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. It's interesting here, the combination of callousness and greediness. It's like they want to feel, they want to have their desires fulfilled, but they're callous and they can't really be satisfied. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's an old Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers, and he has this sermon that I love called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I never have sermon titles that good. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the whole point of that sermon is that your heart abhors a vacuum. You can't just say, I don't want sin, I don't want sin, I don't want sin. It'll never work. You can't rid yourself of desires. Instead, what you have to do is your heart has to be captured by a new and better desire. A more appealing affection. Here's what Chalmers says. In a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away and all things are to become new. So here's our tactic then. You want to fight sin? Address to your mental eye the worth and excellence of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Behold the worth and excellency of Jesus Christ, and McDonald's won't even be tempting to you anymore. You and I must become enamored with God's beauty displayed in his son. So what does this look like functionally for us? I mean, it's great to talk about this, 
But what does this look like in your life this week, in my life this week? For me, as I've been processing through this, and hopefully for you too, I think what this means is we must become people who explore God's word. We don't just read it. We don't just study it. Those two actions are necessary. They're important. You can't explore without reading and studying, but I want to raise your expectations a little bit regarding God's word this week. We must become biblical explorers. When I was a kid, I used to go to a friend of mine's house and they had all this property. I don't even know that all of it was theirs, but they were right in the middle of the woods and there was a huge wooded area around their house. And I would go over there Sunday morning after church and we would spend all Sunday afternoon traipsing through the woods, getting ticks all over us, but nothing better than that. Children delight in exploration. It's so fun. Why? Because of the potential of discovery and a sense of wonder that comes from exploring. You just don't know what you're going to find, but you're excited about it. When you explore, you're taking in every detail of what you're seeing. You're constantly aware and you're looking around you. You're poised and you're ready for something exciting to pop up. You don't always know exactly what you're looking for, but there's a sense of curiosity and there's a sense of awe and wonder at what you will find. When you explore, you're trying to understand how this new area fits into what you already know. You explore a new section of the woods and you wanna know how does this relate to the old section of the woods? You're making a mental map of the area. Maybe as kids, you're even drawing a physical map of the area to know what's there. We need to be biblical explorers, excited in awe and curious about God's word. And maybe we don't explore the Bible. Maybe we view Bible reading as a chore to be done and checked off of a list because we're just not excited about what we might find there. We just don't know what's there. We don't know the glory that is within the pages of this book. And I think instead of the chore perspective, we need to take the perspective of the psalmist. Psalm 119. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I mean, think about that for a second. Who wouldn't want to have a lot of money? I mean, don't get all Christian on me and say you wouldn't. You would love it if you had a huge inheritance. But the psalmist says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight. I take more joy and I take more delight in God's word than I do in thinking about what it would be like to suddenly receive $10 million as an inheritance. That's how much he values God's word. Psalm 119, 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. How exciting would it be for my friend and I to have gone out into those woods and have found something that was incredibly old and valuable? That'd be sweet. We would be thrilled. But the psalmist says, I love God's word so much that I find more joy. The level of rejoicing in my heart is like if you were to go out and find some buried treasure. I 
love this. I love reading this book and looking through it. That's what the psalmist says here. And when that is our perspective of God's word, this is the result. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart, and I've stored it there because I love it. I rejoice in it. I delight in it. I've explored it that I might not sin against you because I've cultivated a new affection for God through his word, and sin's just not appealing to the same level it was before. Your heart cannot be captured by the riches of God's word and the riches of sin. And I put riches in quotes there. You cannot be enamored with the glory of the gospel and the glory of the American dream. One desire or the other will rule your life and control you. And so, God has set a steak dinner before us in his word. It's there. We all have copies of it. It's accessible to us. It's meant to be explored and delighted in. It has all the fixings ready. But we continually turn from the table and leave and go and try to find satisfaction in a cheap and sorry substitute. We think it will satisfy. We believe it will satisfy. But we bought into the lie. And so this is where both of these strategies come together. In order to delight in God's word, you must expose sin for what it is and cultivate a taste for God's glory through his word. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to want your word. Our desires are too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We do fool around with sin when infinite joy is offered to us. We don't view your word as we would in a massive inheritance, millions of dollars. And so we need your help. We, Holy Spirit, we need you to work in us and cultivate a desire for your word. Help us even tomorrow morning, whether we feel like it initially or not, to get up and to seek this book as an explorer seeks buried treasure. Look there, delight in it, pursue satisfaction and joy and affection in your word rather than in sin. Give us the ability to trust your promise that our true joy lies here through the work of Jesus Christ. We can't do that on our own. We can't change our own hearts. It, it, it takes you, Lord. And so do that work in us even now. In Christ's name we pray.